is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Warwick Long with you for the Country Hour for another day. It's a big day in terms of the future of the Murray-Darling Basin for a couple of reasons. And there were two big events going on, starting on the streets not far from where I am in Shepparton today with a major protest around the bill to extend the basin plan, including more water buybacks. Don't fight the hand that feeds the nation. Don't turn the food bowl into a duck bowl. At the same time, that big convoy of trucks and tractors and all sorts of other bits of agricultural equipment was driving through the streets of Shepparton. A press conference was on in Canberra involving the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek. It was her achieving the opposite of what those protesters were calling for. I'm very pleased to say today that Labor has been negotiating with the Greens Party and that we have agreed to a number of significant amendments to the Restoring Our Rivers Bill, which will improve the bill and allow the Greens Party to vote to support the Restoring Our Rivers Bill in the Senate. So what does that mean? We'll hear the political fallout from Canberra, what that negotiation, what deal has been done. We'll get all of those details for you this lunchtime. We'll also head to the UN's major climate conference. That's coming up this week. Agriculture taking a major position at this conference, more so than what has been seen in the past. So what's in that? We'll talk about that for you as well. Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Fiona Broom today. Fiona. Hey there, was making rural news today. Nests of red imported fire ants discovered in northeastern New South Wales could have been there for more than three months, experts say. While the infestation has been confined to southeast Queensland for more than two decades, the front line has been edging steadily closer to the New South Wales border. New South Wales Farmers Far North Coast Branch President Craig Huff says the state needs to get on a war footing if it has any hope of preventing the pests from becoming entrenched. We felt that the border checkpoint or the border uh, policing of materials and goods coming across the border has been totally inadequate. Uh, We have called for a checkpoint at the heavy vehicle transport station, for example, at Chindra, uh, just on the M1, to be uh, taken on there and for DPI to set up a checkpoint there. And we're still calling just as recently this morning and asking the DPI, would you please consider that as a measure? Because it puts a strong message to the community Uh, of how drastic the situation is. Rural charity Aussie Hayrunners has announced they'll return to the Upper Hunter early next year. Over the past six weeks, two hay runs to the drought-hit region have delivered around $200,000 of hay to about 250 farmers. All of the Hunter is now drought-declared, with a quarter deemed in intense drought. Hay Drop coordinator Steve Carter says a little rain over the weekend has been welcomed. It's lifted the spirits. Um, Everybody enjoys that rain. They know what it means out there. Some of the farmers are telling us that some have had handy falls today on follow-up after a couple of storms. Some places still haven't received anything. And um, anyway, at least it's trying. This hay is going to help. As people are saying, um, they know what the price of hay is. The amount we're giving them is only a small amount, but it it might be $1,000 to $1,200 per farmer. Um, And going into the to the end of the year and Christmas and the pressures that put on, puts on family, that $1,000 or whatever, it means a lot to them. 
It's also been a difficult year for almond growers. The ASX-listed almond producer Select Harvests has announced a $115 million loss, saying mould, lower crop volume and infrastructure damage from flooding were to blame. Select Harvests' chief executive David Surveyor spoke to investors on Friday. It's clearly very disappointing to be presenting a poor financial result. A positive aspect is that we held to our guidance, I think, despite the deterioration we saw in pricing during the second half. We saw a lower 2023 crop volume and a price impact of minus $74.5 million on a crop of 19,771 tonnes. And it doesn't change the result, but our crop performance was consistent with the broader Australian almond industry. China's appetite for Australian goat meat is growing rapidly, with exports surging by a staggering 4,000% this year. Meat and Livestock Australia reports in 2022, China took just 1% of Australia's goat meat exports. Now it's taking 20%. And Victoria is Australia's largest goat processor, with more than half of last year's 1.7 million goats processed here. MLA analyst Tim Jackson says the growth in goat processing has opened up more export opportunities. We've had a big increase in goat production in Australia from last year. We typically, in a normal year, would send a majority of that to the United States. What's happened this year is that most of that big uplift in goat production has gone to China. Last year, we exported about 150 tonnes in the year to October to China. And this year, we've ex- uh, exported just over 5,500 tonnes. China's gone from being a very small market for Australian goat to the second largest. To the outback now, and how do you create a community when your closest neighbour is half an hour away? For those who live on Beck Climie's mail run in northwest Queensland, they say it's her special touches which have brought them together through hardship and heartbreak. And the outback postie doesn't just deliver mail, she delivers essentials that keep life moving. There is just this part of being a semi-important cog in a wheel, I suppose. You know, people do, you know, if it's middle of the mustering and they need food, they really rely on the mail to bring the food. It's roughly 600 kilometres a day, so twice a week, so 1,200 k's a week, and there's 34 stops, but most of those are just mailboxes, so I don't see that many people each mail run. There's been chooks and guinea fowls, and the other day there was a potty lamb, so the potty lamb got dropped off to me about 24 hours before the mail run, so lived in my chook pen for <laughs> overnight, and then came in the car with me the next day and t- until it got dropped off. And that's Rural News Today was. Thank you very much for that. We've had posties of all different kinds lately on Rural News, haven't we? We've had the, the airmail variety, the Outback Run variety. It's a wide and varied job around our country. Work along with you for the country out. Plenty of your texts coming in, even around rainfall over the weekend. And, of course, there was a fair bit of that around. I will read some of your texts on that shortly on the program that's coming up. We've got Rob at Chilton, 41.5 millimetres over Friday and Saturday, 30 millimetres of rain at Daysdale for Kylie as well. You can keep those ticks coming. We'd love to know how much rain you've had. Let's talk of water for a different kind, though, to start the program. The Federal Water Minister has announced she struck a deal with the Greens to pass an extension of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. The Greens will now support the legislation after gaining some concessions to permanently put in the plan additional water for the environment and more money for First Nations water rights. It means the plan's extension and more buybacks of water from irrigators are likely to pass the Senate within the fortnight. I had a chat earlier to ABC Rural's Parliament House reporter, Cass Sullivan. 
G'day, Warwick. Well, people who have been following what's been happening with the Murray-Darling Basin plan are unlikely to be surprised that the Greens and the Commonwealth have struck a deal. It's been in the offing, I suppose, since Tanya Plibersek announced a few months ago that she wants to change the law to change the Murray-Darling Basin plan, a piece of legislation that's existed with bipartisan support for more than a decade now. That's for a couple of reasons. Despite that decade, despite more than 2,100 gigalitres of water being allocated to the environment uh, that wasn't there before the plan came into effect, there's still a shortfall of almost 750 gigalitres of water that was to be recovered under the existing legislation. We can go into why that shortfall exists in a moment if you like, but Tanya Plibersek wants to change what's existing in the law at the moment to give more time to basically reach these legislated targets. Uh, She wants to be able to do that by considering new water saving projects that could find those water savings that could go to the environment to boost the health of the system, to increase the ecosystem uh, she also wants to be able to use water buybacks. To do this, Tanya Plibersek does need a few more numbers in the Senate to get the ledge through, and we know now that the Greens will do that. So, Kath, a deal has been done. What are the details of the deal? Okay, so in return for the Greens' support, Tanya Plibersek has committed that 450 gigalitres of water that was originally promised in return for South Australia's support for the original plan that uh, we know can only, well, existingly, can be recovered in a way that causes no socioeconomic harm. Well, the Greens want a legislated commitment that that water will be recovered for the environment by December of 2027. They've also committed $100 million for First Nations to participate in the water market and just as importantly for an acknowledgement of the role of First Nations and the water plays for First Nations. There's 40 First Nations across the Murray-Darling Basin. The legislation will be amended to show that connection to water um, for those groups. There's a couple of other things as well, including the ability for the Commonwealth to knock on the head state-run water-saving projects, which could be an interesting one, and also an integrity audit of the water that's already been allocated or water that has been allocated to the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, and that would be undertaken by the Inspector General of Water Compliance. Politically then, Kath, this deal has been done with the Greens. Does that mean the legislation is sure to pass? Do the government have all the numbers it needs now? Well, I tell you what, Warwick, it's a lot closer today than what it was yesterday. The government will still need the support of two crossbenchers to get the legislation through, but you'd have to think that it was more inclined now that the Greens have backed this deal. Whilst the wait has been on to find out if the Greens were going to support this legislation, Mm -hmm. there's been wide-scale protests in the Murray-Darling Basin in southern New South Wales last week, in Shepparton and in northern Victoria this week. Have those protests been heard at all from the Minister? We haven't seen protests in South Australia or in the northern basin. The minister was asked this morning if this water could come from the northern basin as well as the southern basin. This is water that could be considered for buybacks. Minister Plibersek was clear that the buybacks would be targeted, that they would only be from willing or voluntary people selling, and that they would be done with an intention to lower the socioeconomic harm to those communities. She also refused to say how much water she anticipated could actually uh, be reallocated through water buybacks. Um, 
opting to to see what new projects might be put on the table and see what other ways the water could be saved and and reallocated to the environment. And uh, I suppose then just finally, Kath, too, you mentioned First Nations groups. They're getting a lot more water as part of this, a lot more money for water as part of this deal. Mm. There has been $40 million sitting there for First Nations water for some time and no water has actually been bought. Mm. So does more money fix the concerns of First Nations communities here? Well, I haven't had a chance to kick, kick was I haven't had a chance to check in with any First Nations groups. I've literally just run from the Tandia Plibersec, uh, Sarah Hansen Young media conference, which was followed by Perrin Davey, the shadow spokesperson. Uh, there are more than, there are, sorry, 40 First Nations across the basin, and we know that less than 1% of the water that's held throughout the basin is actually held by uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. So uh, there is room to improve things there. You'd have absolutely have to agree. In 2018, uh, then Water Minister David Littleproud did commit $40 million. There's been a lot of difficulty in seeing that funding actually uh, hit the ground. Uh, and the way that that water is delivered. So um, with the assurance that there will now be more funding to go towards that account, uh, we expect that there will be a clearer path as to, to how it's actually delivered. What happens from here, Kath? If the legislation is to pass, it will need to pass in a hurry. No doubt Tanya Plibersek will be working the phones trying to get uh, some of the crossbenchers to now support. In fact, even Sarah Hanson-Young was saying she was calling on uh, other senators to support the bill. I think she was calling on her South Australian Liberal Senate colleagues to perhaps back this bill. You know, if the laws are to change, it will need to pass the Senate uh, by the time the Parliament rises, I think, next Thursday. So we shouldn't have long to wait to find out what happens. That's Kath Sullivan speaking to you there from Parliament House, has been to those press conferences. Let's take you there uh, for a little bit of what the Water Minister has been saying today as the race is now on to get that legislation passed. But now it looks very likely after this deal was done. Here is the Water Minister uh, explaining the details of the deal. I'm very pleased to say today that Labor has been negotiating with the Greens Party and that we have agreed to a number of significant amendments to the Restoring Our Rivers Bill, which will improve the bill and allow the Greens Party to vote to support the Restoring Our Rivers Bill in the Senate. The amendments go to uh, greater transparency and accountability uh, against water recovery targets, making sure that the water that has been set aside for the environment is actually delivered. Amendments go to um, making sure that water saving and water efficiency projects that aren't going to be delivered are actually withdrawn, that we are operating off a firm base. Amendments go to making sure that there's water for the environment in both the northern and southern parts of the Murray-Darling Basin and that there is a stronger role for First Nations communities across the basin in decision-making around particularly how environmental water is used. We're also uh, delivering on the Aboriginal Water Entitlement Program. This was a promise made in 2018 by the previous government and broken by the previous government. $40 million was promised and never delivered by the previous government. Uh, as well as f- delivering on this promise, we will be increasing that amount of water set aside for First Nations water entitlements to $100 million. I want to thank Sarah Hanson-Young for the very constructive way we've worked together to deliver these important changes to the Restoring Our Rivers Bill and for her support subsequently for the bill. 
And I want to urge other senators who are thinking about the Restoring Our Rivers Bill this week uh, to get on board. As we go into another hot, dry spell, it is inconceivable that we fail the environment and fail inland communities again as a parliament. Labor has a proposal to fully deliver the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It's been improved with cooperative negotiations with the Greens Party. We want to see the, the bill delivered so that we can deliver water for communities and for the environment. It has to happen this week. If this legislation doesn't pass this week, uh, we will go uh, into a, a range of automatic uh, timelines that come into play under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Wouldn't be good for farmers, wouldn't be good for rural communities, and it would be a disaster for the environment. That's the Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek. Here's the Greens Water Spokesperson, Sarah Hanson-Young, talking about why the Greens support the legislation now. It's a lifeline, a critical lifeline for the Murray-Darling Basin. More water for the river itself, for the environment, to give it a fighting chance as we head into this next dry period. For um, my home state in South Australia, this is a breakthrough. For over a decade, South Australia has been fighting for the 450 gigalitres of water to be in law to be guaranteed, to be delivered, because it's what science says is needed to save the, the lower reaches of the Murray, the Coorong and the lower lakes. So this is a win for the environment, but it is also a win for South Australia. And whilst that was going on, tractors and trucks were rolling through Shepparton to protest uh, this basin plan legislation. Don't fight the hand that feeds the nation. Don't turn the food bowl into a duck bowl. Leading that protest on a tractor was the Mayor of the City of Greater Shepparton, Shane Sarley, who can join you now. Shane Sarley, welcome to the Country Hour. Thanks, Warwick. Thanks for having me on, mate. Why a tractor and truck protest today around basin legislation? Oh, I mean, it couldn't be more clear. We're the food bowl of Australia and we needed to again reinforce our message to the federal government. We've been up to Canberra, we've had the meetings. Uh, we've, we've been trying to get some information to them to show that this is what you cannot impact here. You cannot impact the food bowl of Australia. We expected about 30 or 40 tractors and trucks. We had over 100. It was an unbelievable spectacle and a show of real strength around how strong this industry is to our region. You cannot take water away from the food bowl of Australia and, and just think it's going to keep rolling along. While you were doing that in Canberra today, the Minister, Tanya Plibersek, and the Greens announced that they've done a deal to pass this legislation, which is the opposite of what you were calling for. How do you feel about that? That's why we wanted to get a message out loud and clear today. We understand that they were going to be voting on something. We expected them to make a deal that was just, you know, unrealistic. We, we did think that they would get a deal achieved today, but what we were trying to really reinforce today is that if you're going to take water, don't take it away from the food bowl of Australia. What, why do you think the government is getting it wrong for your community? What, what, what is the disconnect here? Well, the first thing is they're not coming here and actually getting on the ground and speaking to the people, the dairy farmers, the fruit growers. They're not speaking to the people in the street to understand how much of an impact it is. These things just don't sort of blow over and it fixes itself. You can't have a region that has effectively built itself on the back of water and agriculture and dairy for the past 100 plus years and think that if you take water away, it's just going to sort itself out. You don't diversify that easily. It's, it's really disappointing that the government have had plenty of opportunities to get here and get on the ground and speak to the real people and they haven't done it. And that's why we wanted to again reinforce our message today. 
And in terms of buybacks, why do you think buybacks are so bad for your community? Well, there's no coming back from that. That's the reality of it. It's a really lazy policy. You just go and get water off the market and people push their trees in, they take their cows off the land and, and the flow and effects are massive. I mean, you know, you can't stop people selling water, but when the farmers perhaps choose to do that, if that's the position they're put into, what about the mechanic? What about the people? What about the kids that are going to the school in that area? That's where the impact and the flow and effects are massive. These type of things don't have an effect just on day one. It takes time and it'll be in a number of years that if they come and take water from the food bowl of Australia, it'll be too late. And that's why we're trying to really send a really strong message to say, don't be lazy. Go and look at the most efficient way to get the water to what you want to do. Uh, furthermore, don't even take anything because you can't meet the expectations of the water you're taking now. Shepparton's a big town. Will you be affected that greatly by further buybacks? Oh, I mean, you've got to think about that. what we've been built on. You know, we're here at SPC. They employ over 300 people, close to 1,000 during the season, and, and the transport industry and the flow and effects to retail and hospitality. You know, I've seen what happens here even personally at a young age when there's drought. You know, and you, you, you sustain it. It's, it's virtually like that, but it's, it doesn't turn around. That's the problem. You're going so, to, we're it, going to hear from an environment group on our program shortly, and I'm sure their argument is that buybacks are done by willing sellers. These are people willing to sell their water to the government. Why, why is that not okay in your view? Oh, I mean, at the end of the day, anyone's entitled to sell the water if that's what they choose, but the policy is created to go and buy the water. And what happens is the person selling the water might benefit and they pack up and they move and they leave the region, but the flow and effects are massive from that. We're trying to look at it more broadly in that, not individually. There has to be a whole uh, sort of a, a holistic lens over the whole sort of basin plan and not just focus on individuals that might be willing to cash in and sell some water and get off the land. This is about protecting things. That's what the government's priority should be, protecting the food bowl of Australia, protecting fresh produce. People should be able to go to supermarkets and buy fresh Australian produce. That's what we're trying to protect. And in terms of the protest today, can you give us an idea of of how many different groups were speaking and what some of those arguments were? Yeah, with members from uh, Fruit Growers Victoria obviously advocating for the Orchardists across the Golden Valley. We had David McKenzie from the GMID Leadership Group. We had Natalie Akers, a local dairy farmer. We had Peter York from SBC. We had a member from the National Farmers Federation. I mean, I mean you could have 100 people speaking, but these people in- encompass a, a large number of people. It was very clear. The message was consistent. You know, water, backs, water buybacks kill communities. Uh, it's a lazy policy, and that's what we're really disappointed about. So the government and the Greens have a deal now to for the Greens to at least to vote on this legislation for it. Do you think it's going to pass now? And is there anything more you well, can do? We, we expected the Greens to align with Labor, but what we've been focused on is getting, getting a message to the crossbench. If it's going to get up, maybe there can be some amendments in there about where the water comes from, how often it comes, make sure there's good socioeconomic tests that can be achieved. I mean, Warwick, this is about, again, getting the message there, making them ask those questions, having them answer us and, and effectively try and get to a, a reasonable outcome. So, you know, you've got to just keep trying. I, I don't have the, the perfect answer, but I know we're having a go. This is a big political position for a council to take. Was, was this a hard decision to make for you? No, water advocacy has been a part of our council plan and, and all our state and federal advocacy documents. Uh, you know, we, we, don't, we don't exist if there's no water here and, and the industries that back it. So this was very, very clear. Uh, this has been done in other parts, so Griffith and, and Leeton and Daniliquin have led it uh, with local councils getting behind it. I think it's really important that, you know, an apolitical group, us here, Greater Shepherd City Council, drive this home 
as much as we possibly can and show our region that we're supporting them. I mean, the biggest industry, uh, that's what makes us allow, you know, be able to thrive and, and give opportunities because we've got a strong agricultural industry here that has massive flow-on effects. Shane Sully, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Rory. Mayor of the City of Greater Shepparton, Councillor Shane Sully, speaking there. Uh, Victoria didn't support uh, this legislation and hasn't signed on to it, but that doesn't stop groups in Victoria being supportive of the deal that has been made today. CEO of Environment Victoria, Jonathan Linoz, can join you on the program now. Welcome back to the country. Great to be with you. You're one of the groups celebrating today. Why? Because uh, it is so vitally important to recover this water to ensure rivers flow and floodplains healthy. We are on the cusp of another big drought and every time we go into drought without sufficient water guaranteed and set aside for the environment, we get closer to ecological catastrophes like the fish kills we saw on the Darling Barker, like the hundreds of kilometres of dead river red gums that we saw during the millennium drought. So this is a step forward for the river and it is a step forward for river communities. This is water that still needs to be allocated and usually more water is allocated in a better year, would you agree? Is it really going to protect the environment in those times of drought that you're talking about? The environment needs to have a guaranteed right to minimum flows during dry periods and also, you know, in the in-between years. What we've seen recently is that Uh, those small to medium overbank events are not getting out and clearing up the floodplain, keeping it healthy. And so that actually then when you get a big flood like we did last year, you get a really toxic water plume coming off the floodplain because it has been kept so sick, so dry for so long. So will this water be used for that effect in your mind? Absolutely. This water will be dedicated to environmental use, to keeping the flood plain dry years and in wet years, uh, to ensure that we're getting native fish breeding events, water bird breeding events, that the riverbanks are, are kept healthy. So this is really something that the whole community benefits from. You've just heard from a mayor of City of Greater Shepparton saying that his community isn't benefiting from it. This will be a, a bad thing for his community, even a city the size of, of Shepparton. What do you say to that? There's there's a lot of uh, a lot of myth out there about the impact that uh, in recovering water has on the industry. I mean, I put it okay, why should we? say to farmers who own their water and want to sell a portion of it to the government, why should we say they can't do that? They're allowed to sell it uh, to a foreign multinational uh, to put into almond crops downstream. Why shouldn't they be allowed to sell it to the government to keep our rivers healthy? Because the argument from them would be it's never going to be used productively for their economic environment again. There's nothing more productive than a healthy river. Um, And keeping some of that water in public hands, public ownership, instead of seeing it traded uh, to water. Our phone line's just a little bit bad there, Jonathan. Sorry, uh, apologies for that. Did want to ask you this. Now, with the support of the Greens, does this legislation pass in the next two weeks in your mind now? 
Well, the Greens and the government don't have the numbers alone. There needs to be another two crossbenchers to support it, or even members of the coalition who you know have historically stood up for a healthy river. So, have you contacted David Pocock's office or Senator Jackie Lambie's uh, office asking for their support? We're we're talking to to everyone on the crossbench. Um, I I urge them to support this bill with the improvements that have been uh, put forward, but we haven't had a clear answer yet. I think the phone just held out for us in time. Jonathan Lenoz, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Jonathan Lenoz there, CEO of Environment Victoria, joining you on the Country Hour. I am late for the weather. We should head to there right now. Uh, Natasha Shapova's uh, been waiting patiently, actually, for regional news headlines first. Let me get it right, Was uh, Good afternoon, Natasha. Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news. A new report by a Greyhound lobby group is urging the state government to urgently reform racing regulations and to stop funding the industry. The Coalition for the Protection of Greyhounds published the current State of Greyhound Racing Regulations report this morning, calling for all taxpayer-funded projects to be halted, including track upgrades. A woman from Greater Bendigo will travel to Canberra this week for the formal national apology to Australians for the thalidomide drug tragedy. The drug was widely distributed to pregnant women in the early 1960s to treat nausea and was later found to cause severe birth defects in children. This Wednesday's apology by the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, will include the unveiling of a memorial at Lake Burley Griffins in Canberra. The president of the Victorian Caravan Park Association says accommodation providers across the state are struggling to pay sky-high insurance premiums or are deciding to forego insurance entirely due to the cost. The peak body says international insurance companies are walking away from the Australian market, deeming floods and fire seasons as too risky. A recently opened youth eating disorder clinic at Grampians Health is helping reduce the amount of inpatient admissions, according to one of the service's paediatricians. The multidisciplinary clinic at Ballarat Base Hospital launched in April, giving people under the age of 18 years old access to a variety of eating disorder specialists in the one location. And an Albury community group is calling for a moratorium on the development of any bike trails at a popular nature reserve. Tonight, Albury City Council will vote on whether to adopt a revised draft master plan around the development of the Eastern Hill site amid concerns surrounding how trails will affect the area's aesthetic. And that's the news. Thanks, Natasha. Natasha Shapova there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. 12 millimetres from Barry at Kyabram, 22 millimetres across the weekend for Dave at Lake Tyres. Uh, love this one. 46 millimetres near Bright uh, from Clyde. Not a massive total, but perfect for our cut flower trade. We grow waratahs and proteas and harvest in and harvest September, October. So follow-up rain is essential for regrowth. Our waratahs already have a metre of new growth since harvest. Clyde, love that detail. Thank you very much for telling us what the rain is doing for your operation where you are. Thank you very much for sending a text through. You can send one through 0467 842 722. Just before I go to Bright, uh, 
Brian McPherson to talk about weather. Here are some of your texts to come on the Murray-Darling in particular. Try and get the broadest sense across it all. Robin says, when driving through Tail and Bend to Adelaide or visiting Goolwa, there's so much water there. I've never seen it low. Uh, was what a sad, sad day for irrigation communities in this country, says Anthony at Yalka. Uh, this one saying clearly these politicians should not have a portfolio. They have no understanding about all the issues within, says uh, Sean. Sarah Hanson Young said it all a victory for South Australia, says another text as well. Uh, this one's from Des saying on the Murray Darling story and in response to the Shepherd and Mayor, farmers have had years, decades to diversify production and many have. What a selfish view on our biggest river system. Environment water, environmental water is productive and everyone benefits from an environment, from a healthy river system, says Des. Depends on your definition of productive though, doesn't it, Des, in, in terms of and economic benefits and so forth. And there are reports there. I'm not trying to belittle what you're saying. Uh, Environment Victoria is not a government organisation, simply another greenie group, says this text. Uh, more are coming in. I'll get to more of those in just a moment. Also calling for a personalised weather report coming here for, for Brian McPherson. I'll get to that in a moment. But Brian, uh, from the Bureau of Meteorology, welcome back to the program. How you going, Warwick? Oh, lots of text there. Let's get to the weather. Lots of rain on the weekend. How's it looking to start this week? Yeah, look, uh, fairly settled today, a uh, bit dreary in the south with some uh, cloud on and south of the ranges, a bit of uh, drizzle that's generally eased off now, but uh, fine and sunny in the north and uh, temperatures a um, little bit cool, um, but a uh, bit of a lull between the um, the interesting weather that we've had on the weekend and Friday and, and then what's coming up from tomorrow. And so from tomorrow, what are we looking at? Yeah, so we have a low-pressure system that's going to develop over northern South Australia today and then then move over southern um, New South Wales and and track down sort of near the the New South Wales-Victorian border over the next couple of days. That's going to bring quite a bit of um, instability and some rain to Victoria, starting from, um, might see the odd job, shower or storm popping up in the far northwest today, Uh, but after that it spreads over most of the the um, inland parts of the state uh, tomorrow and on Wednesday. Reasonable amount of rainfall with this one. It's, it's got a good grab on some tropical moisture um, and then also with that deepening low, it's just giving it a, a bit more of a kick. Um, some rain in it, but um, the highest falls will be out of thunderstorms um, and we could see some severe weather, a severe thunderstorm uh, warnings go out over the next few days for heavy rainfall um, with this system. So all up, uh, I guess, for the 48 hours um, till Wednesday night, a fair bit of rainfall expected across the state. So could be looking at um, generally... Oh, 10 to 20 mils throughout, maybe a bit less in the in the far southwest. Um, but then some some higher falls, particularly as you go along the northern border of the state and then out into to, um, far east Gippsland and, and then even parts of central Gippsland might even uh, get a bit uh, further on into the sort of the Wednesday period rather than tomorrow. So could see some falls in that sort of 50 to... 60-odd mil mark, um, but then even some higher ones potentially if you, if you get under a really good storm um, and you're along the, the along the Murray or down over um, Far East Gippsland, you might see uh, up to like 90-odd mils over the, over the two days. Um, 
So, yeah, a fair bit of rain with this one. Uh, and then I guess the interesting thing that's happened uh, is the models that were taking this low straight out into the Tasman Thursday, Friday, and generally easing things off, are now tracking it back along the Victorian coast or into Bass Strait for a couple of days before it heads off. So um, if the... If the models keep going this way and this is how it pans out, we could see some rain hanging around, uh, particularly the Gippsland parts of um, the state Thursday and Friday and get a little bit of extra on top of what they're going to get over the, the next two days. Um, so we'll be watching that closely and, and having a think about if there's any riverine um, impacts to any extra rain. But um, we want to see the models sort of settle down and... and uh, uh, show us that that's the most likely outcome instead of taking the low straight out to the Tasman. So a fairly active week, um, quite wet for this time of year. Uh, and, um, yeah, a bit, a bit warmer tomorrow, but then um, things will cool down under all that cloud and, and with the rain. Yeah, a lot going on. Um, Brian, Michael from Max Creek sends a text going, was, can I have a personalised weather report for Yarram, which is sort of South Gippsland, I suppose, just with this easterly from today to Friday with total millimetres, please. Uh, Michael, not asking for much by the sounds of, of the variability of later in the week, but, but can, you give, can you give Michael an idea of his week ahead in that area of Gippsland? Oh, gosh, you have to happen to pick probably the, uh, the, the most uncertain spot in the state, actually. Um, look, uh, tomorrow there's a chance of, like, yeah, we'll see some, some rainfall tomorrow, maybe some showers, chance of maybe getting a storm tomorrow as well, um, but more likely to the north of there. Um, rainfall totals-wise for the next couple of days, oh, look, it's a little bit more certain for that. Um so oh, let's go probably not not so much tomorrow unless you end up under one of those storms. Uh, probably, you know, only in the, the zero to, to five mil, but then if you get under a storm, you might get, you know, 10 to 15 mils tomorrow and then a better chance as we go later into the week there, uh, looking at more like, um, oh, look, you're, you're definitely in the firing line in that, that part of Gippsland in those southeasterlies say 10 to 20 mils, but then if you're under some good storms, you could get up to 50 mils um, in parts of Gippsland through there. And then the real uncertainty, as I mentioned, with that low now tracking back along the coast is Thursday and Friday and what that means for, for parts of Gippsland. Um, and if the low does come all the way over to, to around about there uh, on Friday morning, then, yeah, you could get some fairly decent totals indeed. Um, but, or... Look, we're probably looking at another another maybe 20 mils each day um, through there Ooh, at so this stage. But, yeah, yeah. but a lot of uncertainty in, in that one. So, yeah, uh, watch this space. A couple more quick questions. Lenny and Gus want to know, what's the chance of hail in this next round of storms? Yeah, look, um, we had some fairly decent hail uh, over the weekend um, with those storms that went through. The stuff that we're getting with... Um, with this low pressure system, it looks like any severity is more likely to be just the rainfall. Um, maybe a chance of getting some some gustier storms as well, so some wind. Hail doesn't look very likely. Uh, very slight chance up in the um, northwest of the state probably tomorrow when when things are at their most um, dynamic. And, and uh, just before I go, warnings wise, anything we need to be aware of for the next twenty four hours or so? 
Oh, look, it's it's really um, keep an eye out tomorrow uh, on any potential severe thunderstorm warnings. Will do. Bri, thank you so much for that and thank you for being so good about when, when we picked the hardest area of the state for you to try and give us a rainfall <laughs> total. Much appreciated. Yeah, no worries. Brian McPherson there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology with all the weather details for you. A couple of texts just before we keep moving. Uh Let's go down. Caniva West Wimmera, 112 millimetres plus hail for five kilometres wide by 30 uh, by a 30 kilometre long storm on Friday night. Timing for our district couldn't have been worse, says that text. Oh, that's awful to hear. Sorry about that. Right on harvest. What a shocker. Thank you for telling us that information. No, lovely 43 millimetres at Dunkeld. Says another text, though, over the weekend. We'll keep the pastures growing a little longer. Great for the garden and the tanks, says Heather, as there's the two sides of the coin of rain right there. Nigel at Vesper got 22 millimetres Saturday, 7 on Sunday. Heavy skies, great, in all caps, says Nigel. So let's talk something other than water for a moment. Let's talk climate. The Global Climate Conference COP28 is due to kick off this week in the United Arab Emirates. Food systems have long been overlooked in the 30 years since world leaders first agreed to cut greenhouse gas emissions and halt climate change. But this year, agriculture will be on the agenda like never before. So all of this week on ABC Rural, we'll be looking at how food systems are affected by and contribute to climate change and what's really up for debate at a conference like this. Fiona Broom has more. From the initial flood a month ago, we think that there's been at least 10,000 cattle lost. Pasture paddocks and stubble paddocks were all burned out. About six kilometres from the river. I mean, we're not on the riverbank. Here we are in water again. We sort of estimate the area impacted by the weather we've seen would probably account for around 20 million tonnes. World leaders are meeting this week for climate talks in the Arabian desert city of Dubai, a city that has just been hit by intense flooding. And the world has just experienced its hottest 12 months in recorded history. In most of Australia, that's meant the driest winter farmers have ever seen. And as the oceans warm and disrupt rainfall patterns, farmers are also experiencing flooding on a new scale. Agriculture is the sector in the world that is most affected by climate change. This is Natalie Collard, the CEO of the member organisation Farmers for Climate Action. We know that because they're impacted the most and their, their livelihoods depend on being able to succeed in variable climates, farmers have been doing that forever. Um, but in an era of climate change, repeat fires, floods, droughts, ascending insurance costs through the roof, but also the fine art of farming successfully has got harder for every single Australian farmer. Richard Eckard agrees. He's a professor of sustainable agriculture at the University of Melbourne. He says food systems are being dramatically affected by the world's changing climate. Most sectors in agriculture have lost about 20% of their productivity in the last 20 years. And so um, it, it's more exacerbated in southern Australia where there's, there's a very clear signal that the millennium drought wasn't a drought. It was a step change in our climate. And so we've seen most of southern Australia from Western Australia all the way through to the east basically drop in rainfall as all our weather systems have moved about four to 800 kilometres south. 
In Northern Australia, it's a lot less clear. You know, if you take the weather at Longreach, the rainfall at Longreach that goes from, you know, almost nothing to thousands of millimetres, um, it's difficult to tell a long-term trend within that. So there's no doubt that uh, the climate has already changed and that agriculture is already being affected. So if farms are producing less food and fibre, how serious is the economic impact of climate change? Here's Australia's Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt. Our farmers are on the front line of climate change and the modelling we've got from ABARES within the Agriculture Department shows that the average Aussie farmer um, has had a profit fall of about 23% or nearly $30,000 per farm over the last 20 years because of changing conditions due to climate change. So really, we need to be doing more both to preserve farm incomes and make sure that we keep those markets open into the future, quite apart from the sort of environmental benefits. Beyond the economic impacts, Natalie Collard says climate change is taking an emotional toll on farmers as well. Food and fibre producers in Australia are being severely impacted by climate change at the moment. Um, We know um, from research that the National Farmers Federation has done that this is causing high levels of anxiety and stress for farmers. And part of that reason is climate change is not a new thing that food and fibre producers are dealing with. Australian farmers have been grappling and adjusting and adapting to climate change for well over a decade now. We know less emissions will mean less fires, floods and drought. And it's not just the headline disasters that are affecting farmers. Unreliable weather makes it hard to plan, according to Tammy Jonas, the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. She says that means agriculture will be central to future climate solutions. Farmers are some of the, I guess, the frontline victims of the same thing that we're part of causing in terms of the impact of of the major disasters that we're seeing, the changing climate and what will grow when, um, even without a disaster, just whether you can finish a crop without a frost coming at the wrong time or a heat wave at the wrong time. That interplay between causing those things and being a victim of those things puts farming in a unique position in climate change. That is uh, Tammy Jonas from the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. She's their president, ending that report from Fiona Broom. And our climate and agriculture coverage will continue across the week in the lead up to COP28 because you're going to hear a lot from that conference about agriculture and how it uh, works into the UN's major conference on climate change so we'll have to keep an eye on that as it goes you can keep those texts coming 0467 842 722 on the issue of water malcolm from wangarat has been listening and wants to make a comment on 1300 hi malcolm hi thanks warwick for taking me call i just listened to tanya pluthersek and um uh what's her name sarah henson uh, young yeah yes young their argument for the rush of this murray darling basin for the um, for the rush through this week is that we're heading into a dry period now. Don't these politicians realise that Australia is made up of four seasons and we're approaching summer, which is a dry period, and Australia basically is a dry continent. We have periodic wet periods. And about a month ago, I heard on the ABC the Minister for Agriculture, the Federal Minister, saying that we're going into a prolonged drought. Now, how the hell does he know? Has he got a crystal ball? I mean, that's like saying, I'm going to drive to Melbourne from Wangaratta, and I'm going to have a car accident. I mean... No, you're going to be right, though, in, in some sense, though, aren't you, Malcolm? Aren't we always heading towards the next drought? We're a country with varied climate. 
We are. We're a dry continent. We have periodic wet periods, and that's why we build dams. And those three big dams, Dartmouth, Hume and Eildon, are all full, and that's a strategic uh, period because that's never happened before when they're all being full at the same time. There's heaps of irrigation water. That's why we build dams. I, I don't know where these politicians are. I mean, as for that federal minister saying that, that was, that was just um, heartbreaking uh, because people... people there was that much bad press out there uh, that people were destocking um, simply because they thought they're going into a dry period. I mean, you know. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it, the, the comment being more about the timing than the fact that if it was inevitable or not. Malcolm, thank you for your call, 1300 if you would like to call us just before we head to Livestock markets a uh, whole lot of texts coming in uh i'll try and get to some of them Jono, uh north of the 35th parallel says on the borderline has sent a beautiful photo in of lovely blue skies where he is at least today a uh, lot of texts coming in on water we might get to those in just a few moments we might head to livestock markets first then hey A lot of these to get through as well. It's market time. Let's start in Bendigo with the land market there. And uh, Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Mutton was a big improver today. Prices 10 to $20 dearer across a bigger yarding of 7,330 sheep. Heavy crossbred ewes, $50 to $65. And merino ewes, $60 to $75. Although it was light sheep that really stepped up, even the plainest lots above $34 ahead today. The ballpark cost for mutton was 170 to 220 cents a kilo carcass weight. Talking point for lamb was a big drop off in numbers, down to 13,400 head or 7,000 less than a week ago. Not a lot of quality again, and quite a few of the lambs with weight were minimal for fat cover. Not all buyers operated, and it was a different buying group with Hamilton in the Western District starting its split markets today. The lamb market was similar overall, with price movements just a few dollars either side of last week. Heavy suckers, 140 to the top of 164, or 480 to 520 cents a kilo. Heavy trades, 122 to $146 at around 510 cents. General run of trades, 90 to 120. What we did see is restockers push up again with nice lines of Sean suckers up to $7 dearer at 68 to 88 for most, one pen to 104. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Jenny. Let's head to Hamilton Lambs, uh, which have a Monday sale now, and Tim Delaney. Good afternoon. Hamilton agents penned at 9,500 lambs for the first Monday lamb market. Close to a full field of buyers attended provided spirited competition. Price of the good quality lambs were from $3 to $8 stronger. Excellent pens up to $10 in places. Secondary lambs were unchanged to $5 dearer. A couple of restockers operated and purchased lambs from $48 to $84. Light lands for processes made from $51 to $81. Light trade words sold from $76 to $107 as they ranged from $440 to $515 cents. Median trade weight lambs were from $93 to $128. Heavier trade weights, $120 to $139. With the heavier lambs, $132 to a market top of $159. They mostly averaged between an estimated $500 to $530 cents a kilogram carcass weight. There's a couple of merino lambs pens that sold from $42 to $61. Heavy hoggets made to 70. This has been Tim Delaney, reported MLA Hamilton. Thanks, Tim. Let's keep the skates on. We've got a lot to get through. We've got a Shiana Lamb with Packenham Cattle. Good afternoon. Cattle numbers increased to 1,056. 
All the usual buying group were present and operated in a mostly firm Tadira market. Young cattle gained 15 cents for the better quality, grown steers and heifers sold mostly firm, heavy well-bred cows gained 20 cents and the heavy bulls were firm to five softer to a week ago. Vealers sold 180 to 294 cents, yearlings sold to the trade between 200 and 270 cents for the better quality and 140 to 180 for the secondary tarts. Grown steers and bullocks made 206 to 242, grown heifers sold 140 to 210 cents. Heavy Frisian steers made 140 to 215 and the crossbreds 152 to 190 cents. Heavy cows made 144 to 215 cents, medium weights 110 to 173 cents and the light cows were 66 to 100 cents. Dairy cows made 110 to 175 cents and heavy beef bulls sold 165 to 214 cents. This is Shiona Lamb at Pakenham for MLA. Thanks, Shiona. Let's go to Mortlake Cattle now. Take it away, Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded 1,797 head at Mortlake this week. Grown cattle improved by 10 cents a kilo. Manufacturing steers gained 10 to 15. And the trade cattle, they improved 5 to 10 cents. The good beef cows were stronger by 20 cents a kilo, more so for the very heavy cows. However, the bulls slipped by 20 cents a kilo. This week, some good vealers on offer. They made between 170 and 248. Trade steers and heifers making between 200 and 235. The grown cattle topped at 239 cents. Manufacturing steers made from 152 to 210 cents. The heavy beef cows, they sold from 172 to 220 cents with the medium weights, 160 to 176 cents. Dairy cows were generally between 162 and 196 cents a kilo. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thank you very much for that, Chris. Lucky last in the big market run on a Monday is Leanne Dax, who's been looking over the Wagga Wagga cattle market for us. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to 4,380. The market was dominated by feedlots, all eager for a market share. Domestic processors were unable to up the ante with very few cattle, 350 to 500 kilos, selling to... Processors. Feedlots also stepped up in the export categories, bouncing heavy exports. Steers 45 cents to top at 284. Feeder steer prices under 500 kilo jumped 25 cents, making 212 to 289. Feeder heifers picked up 13 to 30 cents, with the lighter weights topping at 283. Trade cattle sold from 210 to 256. Heavy exports gained 20, 228 to 250. Cows are in high demand, improving 20 to 25 cents, 203 to 233. The middle runner leaner types lifted 25, 186 to 216, and store cows 186 to two dollars, with the bulls topping at 250. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Leanne. A couple of your texts, particularly on water, we've got lots that we couldn't get to. Apologies if I haven't read your text. Uh, Steve says, firstly, get rid of irrigated cotton. Don't ask for it back. Just take it back at market price. No debate or discussion required. Kimbo says, our federal water minister and the Greens are completely inept and out of their depth on managing water plants. Maybe we should stop irrigation and let food stores dry up. So sad to have people in these roles that want to kill off the future of food supply. And another Kim says, so the pollies want to buy back more water. Why? What are they going to do with it? It's not like they are the ones feeding the nation. Do they not realise water is in everything around us? Clothing, food, appliances, etc. All produced in some way with the use of water. Uh, That from Kim. Thank you for all of your texts and all of your thoughts coming in on the program today. We'll be back with you again tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. It's one o'clock.